We will be reading from Mark chapter 6, verses 47 to 56, which we'll find on page 934 in the Bible that's under your seat. looks like this. If you don't have a Bible, please take the one that you will find under your seat as our gift to you. After he had taken leave of them, he went on the mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Teresa. You may be seated. Let's open a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a great day that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can gather together, uh, not only as brothers and sisters in Christ, but Lord, with uh, guests who may be uh, wondering who you are and, and, and where you're from and Lord, what your business is about. Lord, I ask that you would uh, bless this time we have as we dive into your word to try to answer some of those questions, Lord, as we see uh, how Jesus helps us navigate these storms in life. Lord, we love you. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to this gathering of Bayless Baptist Church. My name is Larry Babb. I serve as one of the elders here, and it is uh, a privilege uh, for me to be able to share God's Word with you today. We are continuing in the Gospel According to Mark, one of four books that talk about the, the life and ministry, uh, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are faced with an amazing passage today. Jesus had just spent all day teaching the multitude of people in the wilderness, miraculously feeding the 5,000, then sending his disciples ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee as evening fell. We now pick up the account as Jesus has finished praying to his father and now crosses the sea to meet his disciples. Jesus performs several significant miracles in this passage, walking on the water, calming the wind and the waves, and healing the sick. These are activities what really stand out to us because it's supernatural. But I would like to invite you uh, this morning to dig a little deeper with me. 
I would like to uncover what this passage has to say about Jesus himself more than the miracles that he performed. Every passage of Scripture primarily is going to illustrate one of two topics, either telling us about the nature of God or showing us our need for a Savior. Whether you profess Jesus as Lord or if you're here today skeptical, skeptical about the claims of Christianity, it is my desire to proclaim to you the Word of God so that you come to better understand who Jesus is. Now, throughout the Old Testament, which is written in, in Hebrew, God sometimes chose to reveal himself and describe his character with titles. They give us a word picture that we could then use as a point of reference to help us understand, to comprehend uh, what he was trying to relate to us. Some of these names you may have heard before. Elohim, the creator God. Adonai, Lord or Master. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God. And since Jesus is God in the flesh, these same Old Testament titles apply equally to the Son as they do the Father. Our passage today gives us an excellent opportunity to see how well Jesus qualifies for these titles as he interacts with his disciples and the people around Genesaret. So I'm asking you some questions. Have you ever been used up and thrown out in a relationship or perhaps an employer? Have you ever been mired in misery with no advocate and no one seemed to care? Has repeated rejection been a part of your life's story? And encouragement was nowhere to be found. Where is God, you ask? Where is his love? Where are his promises? Does God even know what's going on? Why would he let these terrible things happen? Doesn't God see the trouble I'm in? You would not be alone in asking these questions. Many people wrestle with these and others, both inside and outside the church. The good news is that Jesus is Elroy-E, the God who sees. Imagine being with the disciples on that storm-swept boat, tossed here and there, completely at the mercy of the elements, and Jesus nowhere to be found. Perhaps they even questioned where they would live to see the dawn. These men were not the first who may have wondered if God saw the predicament they were in. Centuries earlier, in Genesis 16, we learn of a woman named Hagar, also in dire circumstances. She was the Egyptian maidservant of Sarai, the wife of Abram. God had promised Abram an offspring through whom he would raise a great nation. The problem was that Abraham and Sarai were elderly and Sarai was barren. 
So rather than wait on God's timing, Abram and Sarai put their thimble full of brains together and decided to help God out. They made Hagar a concubine to produce an heir for Abram. Now this was a bad idea for a whole host of reasons. Not the least of which is this is not the prescribed method that God promised to bestow upon Abram an heir. This is not a child of promise. But also Hagar, when she became pregnant, began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. When Sarai complained to Abram, he gave her permission to retaliate. And under such harsh treatment, Hagar fled into the wilderness. Put yourselves in Hagar's shoes. Pregnant, mistreated by her master and mistress, far from her family and homeland, no place to stay, no money, no food, wandering alone in the wilderness. And yet, the Lord saw her condition. His angel came to her and told her to return to Sarai and gave her this word of encouragement in Genesis 16, verses 10 and 11. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Understanding that God saw her circumstances and would see her through these difficult times, Hagar responded in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, Elroy-E. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Even though Abram and Sarai had done wrong to Hagar and her son Ishmael was not the child of promise, God nevertheless saw her condition and had compassion on her, made provision for her. Back in Mark, we see the disciples also in danger of a different kind. And while Jesus had first intended to pass them by, the scripture tells us, he was aware of their plight. Verse 48 tells us, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus saw the disciples' struggles. As God had seen Hagar alone in the wilderness, just as he sees the circumstances that you and I face. Jesus is not blind or uncaring. To the contrary, he knows all too well the crisis of our lives and with even greater clarity than we do ourselves. As Jesus encouraged the disciples, so too does he encourage you and I Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid as he approaches the boat. And when you do not think that God sees what you're going through, consider these words of the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. God is too good to be unkind, too wise 
to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. We can rely upon, even if we don't see God's working, that we know that he sees us and he is working on our behalf. Which brings us to the second title we can apply to this passage. Not only is Jesus Elroy-E, the God who sees, he is also Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. We see that Jesus is present with the disciples, climbing into the boat in the midst of their turmoil. At the end of the book of Ezra, Zumi Ezekiel, God gives the prophet a vision of the new temple and new Jerusalem to give this word of encouragement to the Israelite captives in Babylon. For 70 years, they will be slaves there. The book concludes the following out of Ezekiel 48, verse 35. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Where God will dwell with his people. His divine presence will always be among them. By naming this city after himself, God was assuring his people that he would be there for them and with them. What a message of encouragement this had to be to a people who were facing 70 years of captivity in, a, in an evil empire, some of them who would not live to see that city on earth. There's hope at the end of our trials. In fact, there's hope in the middle of our trials. It is so important that as Christians, we not forget God is with us. And that our citizenship is with him in heaven. That is our position. That's not our location today, but it is our position as co-heirs with Christ. We dare not dine at the banquet table of the world and become so glutted and satisfied with the things of this life, not when God has so much more in store for us, and not just for the future, but in this life as well. And I'm not talking about material possessions, although there are misteachings that says God wants you to be happy and wealthy which is not biblical. God wants you to be holy. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants us to pursue personal, holy, spiritual excellence. What I'm talking about is spiritual possessions, a mission, a purpose for my life that transcends the day-to-day -day grind, a higher purpose, worshiping and serving a God who had that plan for my life even before I was born. If only I will turn away from my selfish desires and pursue a relationship with him. We see Jesus getting into the boat with the disciples coming alongside to share in their dangerous situation. Just as he does with you and me today. As followers of Christ, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are never without God's presence. We can trust our circumstances 
to his care. And in this theme, Charles Spurgeon also says, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. On that note, not only is Jesus El Royi, the God who sees, and Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there, but he is also El Elyon, God Most High. This title speaks to Jesus' sovereignty, simply put, his right to rule. Jesus has been given dominion over all, everything is under his supreme authority, even our circumstances today. Consider this passage regarding God's sovereignty from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that's the grave, and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones and the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There is nothing that you and I will face in this life that is outside God's control. That's not to say life will be comfortable or free from pain. That's not what Scripture promises. Nor will everything go all my way all the time. Far from it. But what we do see in Scripture, those who pursue God faithfully and diligently end up on the winning side. God is undefeated when it comes to those who contend with him. And when we reject the gospel, when we desire to find a different way to God, when we pursue what the world has to offer instead of the things of God, we are telling Jesus, I don't need you. In his sovereignty as El Elyon, God most high, Jesus will allow us to have our own way. He respects our free will, although apart from him, it will only lead to our destruction. In the boat with the disciples, Jesus exerts his sovereignty and calms the wind and the waves. If you and I will but lay our circumstances at the throne of grace and trust Jesus to attend it, I have found he will provide a far better solution than if I keep fighting with it under my own limited strength and pitiful ingenuity. Nowhere is this more obvious than in my profession as a cog in the corporate machine. Several of you may be aware that I have been blessed by unemployment several times in my career. 
And I say blessed not because being jobless is a pleasant ordeal. Far to the contrary, it is not. I absolutely hate it. You see, I have an idol called control. I like for things to be reliable, to be predictable, to be secure. And left to my own devices, a steady paycheck would give me the illusion of control. Even the point I might elevate it above God. That as a flawed sinner, I might come to depend upon a piece of paper from man more than I would upon the sovereignty of my Savior. But in his infinite wisdom, the Lord knows that I have this idol. In his infinite love, the Lord wants me to be free of this idol. In his infinite grace, the Lord has provided opportunities through unemployment and the looming threat of unemployment to cause me to rely upon him first and above all else. Last fall, my company announced that my work group was being outsourced. Something no one wants to hear, least of all me. I asked God, what should I do? That he would reveal clearly the decisions that I needed to make. In the end, I seemed to sense that it was right that to apply for my current job, as humiliating as that may be, and return to continue in my present role, but with an outsourced company. This prospect had several downsides. Seven of my ten employees that reported to me took severance and departed. So I'm starting from essentially scratch. Raising up and training a whole new team is going to take months, time I was not going to have. Additional responsibilities were going to be added while my staff was being reduced from ten to eight. Fewer people doing more work. And the new contract is short term probably to last three years, maybe no more. But God has blessed the decision to stay. It is now three months into a difficult transition, and God in his sovereignty has opened up a new position with my former employer. The people who got rid of me, they now want me back. That's kind of cool. I applied, I was accepted. I start my new job on Monday. Returning with my previous years of service and being allowed to support my former team while they can hire a replacement. So they're not out in the cold just because I left. And this did not come about because I'm a fabulous employee or that I bring any indispensable skill sets to the table. The only credit I can take is having desire to be obedient to God, even when it doesn't make sense at his prompting, trusting him for the results, even when I can't see it. Had I followed the urging of my carnal man, apart from seeking the will of God, I would surely have made some very bad decisions. They would have made sense at the time, but ultimately they would have been what I wanted, not what God wanted. It's only when I'm in his will that I am safe. Even at times it doesn't make sense to me. Charles Spurgeon also said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. A.W. Tozer goes further. 
Outside the will of God, there's nothing I want. And inside the will of God, there's nothing I fear. As long as we pursue being in God's will, being under his authority, we're going to be okay. We may not know what that is, but he does. And that's the safety, that's the comfort, that's the control that I lack, I can trust him in. Finally, not only is Jesus El Royi, the God who sees, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there, and El Elyon, God most high, but Jesus is also Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Once Jesus and his disciples reached the shore of Gethsemane, his the word of his arrival quickly spread. As in other places, people quickly converged upon Jesus, seeking more miracles, particularly the healing of the sick. As far back as Exodus, we see God demonstrating his desire to restore his people to health. After the Israelites escape from Egypt, in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, we find that drinkable water was a problem they faced. In Exodus 15, verses 24 to 26, God's word says this, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, he will put none of the diseases upon you that I put upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer, Yahweh Rapha. The Lord has committed himself to the well-being of his people. Not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And now we can, how can we enjoy the greatest health? Looking at Exodus, according to Exodus. By diligently listening to the word of the Lord. By doing what is right in his eyes. Giving ear to his commandments keeping all his statutes. Since you and I were born with a sin nature that we inherited from our parents and their parents and Adam and Eve who want to do their th things their ways instead of God's ways. We start out behind, but when we accept Jesus' death as payment for our sin, God is able to heal those self-inflicted wounds and those delivered by the world. Most importantly, Christ does away with the penalty that that sin that lingers over us. When we ignore what our doctors tell us to keep our bodies healthy, we can hardly be surprised when we experience poor outcomes. Amen? Similarly, by not heeding God's word, we risk damage to our well-being and our fellowship with him. Even if we're a believer, it doesn't cost our salvation, but we can withhold ourselves from God's fellowship. 
when we're outside of his word, when we're outside of his will, when we choose to do what we want to do instead of what he wants to do, then by pursuing a life of obedience and personal holiness, trusting Jesus for all things, we benefit from a restored, right relationship with God. Charles Spurgeon said, There may be some sins of which a man cannot speak, but there is no sin which the blood of Christ cannot wash the way. If you have not yet accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I challenge you, what sin do you hold on to that you would not willingly give up if you knew there was a solution? Jesus Christ is the solution. He is the linchpin of human history. He is the way by which you and I may be healed of our sin condition and be reconciled to a holy and righteous God who wants that relationship for us. And the people around Genesaret flocked to Jesus looking to heal. In typical fashion, Jesus interrupts his schedule so that he can attend their needs. He puts himself above others. But it is interesting to note that just with the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the account of Mark that Mark provides here does not include any expressions of thanksgiving or worship by those being healed. Indeed, gratitude is conspicuously absent. It's included in other places of Scripture. Why is it not here? Could it be that people have gotten so used to Jesus performing miracles that they can only, they're only focusing on what Jesus can do for them rather than to adore the God who's walking among them? Consider the time in the book of Luke when Jesus encountered ten lepers, not leopard, the great cat, but lepers, the people with the skin disease. Luke 17, verses 12 to 19. And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Samaritans are half Jew and half uh, Gentile. Uh, they were considered by the Jewish people to be unclean, to be half caste. They were looked down upon. Then Jesus, verse 17 says, Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Unfortunately, I think this passage foreshadows the consumerism that plagues much of Christendom today. God is frequently retreated as a magical genie in a bottle, granting wishes, but not the absolute sovereign Lord of all creation who is worthy of my allegiance and my respect and my dedication, my adoration. 
By extension, the church is too often viewed as a superstore of programs and services and entertainment that should meet all my needs rather than a congregation of worship where I'm equipped to go forth and serve others as a disciple of my Savior. Let us not take God for granted. Let us not have a wrong view of his church, of what we're here for, worship, of ministry, of serving others, of being ambassadors of reconciliation for our Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, let's return to our questions from the beginning of the message. Where is God? Where is his love? Where are his promises? Does God even know what's going on? Why would he let terrible things happen? Doesn't God see the trouble I'm in? Well, I cannot show you a God who will insulate you entirely from a world broken in sin. I cannot show you a God who will give you a life free of grief, disappointment, and betrayal by sinful man. I cannot show you a God who will ensure that everything always goes your way. To quote one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride, the dread pirate Roberts tells Princess Buttercup, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. However, from Scripture, I can show you a heavenly father who sent his son to die to pay for your sins and mine. I can show you from Scripture a son who set aside his rightful majesty to walk on earth as a humble servant so that you and I can have a restored relationship with his father. I can show you from Scripture the Holy Spirit, who will sustain you and me through whatever crisis comes our way to give us hope and the power to overcome. A couple of years ago, I went to a, a, a Christian conference uh, where there was a, uh, a breakout session called How to Minister in Difficult Times. They had many passages from my favorite book on the subject, Habakkuk. And this speaker was telling a story. In his church, they have what's called run-ons, that while the message is going on, someone will step on the stage and hold up a sign, then go back and take their seat. And it's something to illustrate a point of the message without being too disruptive. Uh, during one such sermon, there were uh, two people who came on one of these run-ons. One was a, a lady, a longtime member of the church. Another was a first-time visitor. The lady held up her sign. It said, I have stage four breast cancer. I have less than a year to live. The man standing behind her lifted his sign, and it said, I am the doctor treating her. He flipped his sign over. It said, last week she led me to the Lord. She turned over her, flipped her sign. It read, worth it. An amazing woman who took the tragedy of her life situation, her failing health, that God used 
in a way that led someone to eternal salvation. We do not know how God will use the crises and the storms in our lives to bring Him glory, to bring joy to others, to bless people who are without hope, who do not know Christ as we know. We have seen Christ reveal Himself here at Bayless. It's Elroy E., the God who sees Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there, El Elyon, God most high, and Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Four years ago, before Pastor Evan came, Bayless faced a crisis. Down in numbers, no longer to afford a full-time pastor, leadership in disarray, confusion among a congregation. Jesus saw Four years ago, on our faces, Bayless cried out for mercy and grace, setting aside our personal preferences and earnestly seeking God's will. Jesus was there. Four years ago, Bayless surrendered to God's sovereignty and pursued a church replant. Jesus stepped in as God most high. Four years ago, Bayless sought healing for wounds that had festered for decades, Jesus responded as the Lord who heals. I need go no further than the brothers and sisters in this room to declare proof positive that Jesus is alive and he is active among those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for being the great God that you are, Lord, who sees us in our affliction, Lord, who is there with us in the turmoil, Lord, that your sovereignty is above whatever we may face, no matter how dire or tragic or horrific those circumstances may be. And Lord, we trust that you are the God who heals, who repairs our relationship with you first and foremost and will work in our lives for that physical, mental, emotional, spiritual healing, Lord, that we desperately need. We ask, Lord, that you would take your word proclaimed here today. Lord, use it to conform our lives to what your scripture reveals. All these things, Lord, we come to you in Jesus' most, Jesus's most precious and heavenly name. Amen.